On this episode of True Crime One-on-One, Sarah Turney from Voices for Justice podcast. I'm your host, Eric Render-Kingfisk from the Fedora Chronicles. In each episode, I interview true crime podcasters, investigators, and authors to ask them about their motivations. What inspires these people to become determined to do what they do? What original cases gave them their start? What cases are they working on now? and the cases that keep them going. This time I talk with Sarah Turney about her website and podcast, Voices for Justice, and how she took the tragedy of losing her older sister and learning the truth about her father's criminal behavior and turned it into her life's mission for justice. While she fights to share with the rest of the world about what really happened to her sister Alyssa, and what it was like to discover her dad was planning a terrorist attack, she becomes a victim's advocate and inspiration for all of us fellow survivors. Follow her on Twitter at VFJPod. Visit her website, VoicesForJusticePodcast.com and listen to Voices for Justice on most podcast services. Once again, here's Sarah Turning. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Hello. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. Well, actually, it's a little chaotic here because right across the street, they're building a brand new house. So there might be some construction sound in the background. Oh, I'm totally fine with that. But how inconvenient for you. I'm sorry. That must suck. (laughs) It, It is. I mean, I'm trying to run a podcast, and it was just like, how rude of them to 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 build their house in the middle of recording a, a podcast. There should be laws against this. So how dare they? How dare they build a house? I know. I'm telling you, <laughs> couldn't they have at least like sent like you know like a basket of flowers and a bouquet and and a telegram? I just I'm I, I hope you realize that I'm being ridiculous. Just you know. Yes. Because. No. They should have sent you some soundproofing foam. It's ridiculous. I actually have some. I I, I actually have to finish hanging it up. So, oh, nice. Yeah, it's it's not soundproofing. It's it's sound resistant. I don't know if there's there's a difference, but my beautiful wife bought it for me because it my the um my passion for audio quality is obnoxious. Any any you have very good quality though. I don't blame you. Okay, thank you. Well, you do your your quality is pretty good uh, today too. Oh, so, thank you. Anyway. Um, so if, uh, if you'd like to get started, uh, let's, let's start with you and, and, and introduce yourself to your listeners and a little bit about yourself first. Sure. Um, yeah, my name's Sarah Turney. I host the Voices for Justice podcast and it's about my missing sister, Alyssa Turney. Um, I really chronicle her entire disappearance and really her entire life, if you will. So you'll hear me, um, reference, you know, 3000 pages of cut case documents, as well as um, insert some of our home video audio, you really hear Alyssa grow up. Um, It's a really special podcast and, of course, very sad, very triggering. Um, But I'm on a mission to get justice for Alyssa, which is why I do it. And I always have to say, I'm sorry for your loss. And I'm sorry that you're going through all of this. But I'm also exceptionally proud of you for how you've taken a tragedy like this and and you've done a lot and um and I feel humbled and a little um inspired to do more with the work that I do what made you want to start a podcast 
to 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 discuss this or yeah yeah I mean, there were all sorts of reasons, right? Um, I really came back from CrimeCon um, in 2019 really invigorated. And I was also encouraged by so many of my content creator friends. Um, they're like, listen, like you are well-spoken. You can do this. It doesn't take much, you know, no offense to everybody out there, but it doesn't take much to start a podcast. And they were like, just go for it. Give it a shot. Um, and, you know, there's a big part of Alyssa's story that has never been released that I really wanted to um, to get out there. But a lot of people, you know, weren't exactly comfortable touching it. And that's a lot of the police stuff. There's a lot of personal things that I went through with the police that I really wanted to put out there. I mean, of course, it's public record. It's not that personal, if you will. Anybody can go in there. Um, but I wanted to showcase that in a way that's never been showcased. And of course, in addition to bringing a very personal touch to Alyssa's story, um, of course, me being the sister and me being the family member and me hearing, you you know, rendition after rendition of Alyssa's story being told, um, no one ever did it in a way that that I would do it, which of course makes total sense. I, that was never the expectation. Um, but yeah, you know, all those factors kind of combined, I, I saw this story of my sister's that I thought could be told um, in more detail and um, with a more personal touch. So I just went for it. Let's talk about the the beginning of the story. Or sure. what is the beginning of the story? How did the story actually start for you? And when did you realize, oh, this is not, this is not right, or this is not real, this isn't happening, like, um, or that you realized something had happened? And how do you, how do you go from there? Like, what's the beginning of the story? Yeah. I mean, in my podcast, I go all the way back to when my father was born because he's such a large part of the story. But I mean, you know, the the main core of the story, of course, starts with Alyssa disappearing. And that happens in 2001. She's 17 and I'm 12. Um, you know, at this point, Alyssa is the only mother I've ever had. Our mother passed away in 1993, which meant um, when I grew up, it was me, Alyssa and my dad. Primarily, we have four older brothers, but they moved out uh, at that point. They're much older than us. So when she went missing, um, my life was kind of turned upside down. And of course, we can talk about that day. Um, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, it was the last day of school for both of us. Um, Alyssa was a junior in high school and I was in seventh grade. Essentially, um, mother picks her up early out of school that day. He doesn't tell anybody he does this. Um, he takes Alyssa to go to lunch. We don't know where they ate, if they ate there, if they came home. Um, that story's never really been solidified. But they get into an argument. You know, at this point, my father was extremely overbearing about Alyssa. Um to extents that I wasn't aware of yet. But um, apparently the conversation went in such a way that Alyssa was asking for more freedom. You know, she just turned 17. She felt that he was being too strict and she wanted to do more things, you know, according to my father. Um, they get in a fight about it. My father says, absolutely not. Um, you're not responsible enough, whatever it is. And then he leaves. Um, he's unaccounted for for maybe four to five hours. Um, and then eventually he comes and picks me up. So I was actually at a water park that day. You know, we live in Arizona, so uh, a field trip to a water park is, is a really fun deal. So it was one of the only days I went to school. Um, so I remember it pretty clearly in terms of the day. Um, but yeah, he, he picked me up. 
I walked to a friend's house. I'm sorry, after school. Um, we started smoking cigarettes because we're 12 and in seventh grade or whatever. And then um, I get into his truck and I'm nervous, right? I'm nervous that he's going to smell these cigarettes on me, but he doesn't. He doesn't say anything. He says, um, you know, your sister's not answering her phone. Can you give her a call? And he hands me his cell phone. I didn't have one at the time. It was just him and Alyssa that had cell phones. And I try to call and there's no answer. We get to the house and I enter her room first. I notice that her backpack is dumped all over the ground, which was really weird because Alyssa always had a very neat room. She was always a, a neat kid. Um, and then to the left on her dresser, there's um, a runaway note and her cell phone is left. And the runaway note essentially says, you know, um, you wanted me gone, Sarah. I'm going to California. I saved my money and dad, I took more money from you, um, Alyssa. So right away, I'm like, okay, she's mad. You know, she went to a friend's house, whatever. I'm in total sister mode. Like, I don't care. You're being dramatic. Um, and my dad starts to freak out immediately. He's like, no, she could be in danger. He starts making all these phone calls. Um, but then 11 o'clock rolls around and he doesn't call 911. He calls the emergent, the non-emergency line. And he says, um, my daughter left. She got mad at me. She's also a drug user and she went to her aunt's house in California. Um, so my father has legal law enforcement experience. So the way that he reported her missing um, evoked no search. It evoked no police officer coming to our home. It evoked no investigation, really. Um, so nothing much happened. There is a phone call that, that takes place a week later. Essentially, a phone call is made from a payphone in California. Um, it, it comes in at 5 a.m. and it lasts for 29 seconds. Um, but my father says it was Alyssa and the police disagree. The police don't believe that was Alyssa at all. And a big factor in that is that um, my father actually had surveillance on our home phone for my entire life. So any phone call coming in or going out was automatically recorded through our landline. And that call wasn't picked up. Um, we also had security cameras inside and outside of our home. And there was no footage of Alyssa leaving that day. There's no footage from the entire day from them, you know, going to lunch and him going to pick her up. Even me coming back that day, there's just no footage. Um, but of course, you know, I don't think these things at the time. I'm 12. So I just do what I'm told and um, think that she'll be back. So it takes quite a long time um, to really get to the point where I think that something could have happened. And of course, you know, um, what happens is that there's a man who falsely confesses to killing Alyssa. It's a man who confessed to killing 21 other people, um, including like J.C. Lee Dugard, who was found, you know, alive. And the police look into it. They think that this guy, you know, um, just doesn't fit the bill. They're like, you don't know this girl. You didn't do it. And the guy eventually says, yeah, you know, I think you're right. I think I, I misspoke and this isn't the girl. Can I just, what? Can I, I just, yes, want please. To, just, I just <laughs> want to interject here. Why did he confess to doing it if he didn't do it? Or is that, were you getting to that? Um, so no, I wasn't getting to that, oh, but okay. I can, I can, no, but I can definitely talk about that a little bit. So I don't know for sure is kind of the long story short, but, um, through my podcast, I actually reached out to this gentleman and I've exchanged a few letters from, with him. I've spoken on the phone with him and he says, he hasn't explained his entire story yet, but he says that he wants to tell me his story because there's so much I don't know. And that the timing of his confession was not a coincidence and that there's a reason that he had, you know, he has some pretty specific details about Alyssa, which was really, really jarring. Um, but so I'm still exploring that because he says that, that there's a reason 
he did all of that. Um, but I have not been able to get back in contact with him. So what that reason is, I don't know yet. Okay. Okay. So, and another question that just popped into my mind, why did your dad have the house under such strict surveillance? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great question and he's never really answered for sure because the surveillance really went beyond normal house surveillance, right? Cause he, I mean, he says something like we had a trailer stolen out of our front yard, which is, which is totally true. Absolutely. We had something stolen out of our front yard. He says that a man tried to break into the house. I don't really remember this incident. I remember it being talked about, um, but it was nothing I was afraid of. So he says that that warranted him putting cameras outside on our porch, which fine. Like I, you know, I think that's totally normal. If you want to have exterior cameras, I get it. Um, but why he had a camera inside of our living room vent for security purposes never really made sense to me. Um, and another thing that goes into that is after Alyssa was gone, he moved me from my regular bedroom, um, to the master bedroom and that master bedroom housed, the like the main uh what do you call it like the main monitor where you could see all the cameras uh so literally i had control over the surveillance cameras after that and then i asked him to take the camera out of the vent and he did so i have to believe that those cameras were mostly to watch Alyssa. why was he watching Alyssa? yeah so eventually i find out you know the police tell me that my father was obsessed with Alyssa. essentially she had been um speaking out about being sexually abused by our father since she was nine years old and this is a good time to remind people that Alyssa is not my father's biological daughter i always forget to say that because okay. we were just raised brothers and sisters but Alyssa has a different father biologically you know she was raised by our father since she was about two years old so, you know, it was always dad. It was never stepdad. It, from my eyes, there was never any any separation there. But of course, growing up, looking back at it now, you can see that we were treated completely differently. Um, but yeah, she told people about this sexual abuse since she was nine. She went to a teacher who my father was dating at the time and said, I'm having sex with my dad. Um, and then there's several incidents in between incidents of her being tied up and gagged, um, her being taken out into the middle of the desert and um my father like attempting to sexually assault her. She told many, many friends. Friends saw her got hit, you know, get hit in the face and pushed pushed against walls for talking to boys. The officials at her school remembered my father almost like ten years later saying, Yeah, I remember he treated his daughter more like a girlfriend and would always ask us if she was seeing boys. Um, so I think he had a very unhealthy obsession with my sister that that really you know, came after our mother died. My Alyssa looks so much like our mother. So it's hard for me to not believe that that doesn't factor into it. Um, but yeah, he was trying to watch her every move. He um, would watch her when she worked at Jack in the Box at night. He would sit in the parking lot and just record her. Um, you know, it, it's insane. There's a video also out there from, I think Alyssa's about 14 and I'm actually recording her. We're on a camping trip and I'm just like, you know, being an idiot or whatever, holding the camera, like, look at me, I want to film. And then Alyssa, you know, she, she goes, Sarah, Sarah, dad's a pervert. And then I just kind of pause because I'm like nine or whatever. I don't really know what that means. And then my father, you know, he says, Sarah, turn off the camera. And then he goes, and Alyssa's a stupid moron and starts like throwing her Adidas slides at her. Um, so, I mean, there's there's well-documented 
abuse, um, at least in my opinion. I feel like it was well-documented in terms of a child being able to speak out. Of course, she didn't write down dates. She didn't write down instances. She no. didn't have that foresight to you know, get the documentation that people would need for sexual abuse charges. But in my eyes, it's, it's well-documented. So, um, yeah, I think that that was a huge motivation for him to, to really shut her up. One of the things that I had experienced when I was being abused when I was an adolescent is that just by merely having a diary or keeping a journal of anything that's going on was a good excuse for my mom's boyfriend to kick my ass. And having a conversation with my aunt and uncle this weekend about what had happened on my end is that there are all these warning signs. And when you, and when, when somebody says something about themselves, take their word for it. And when other people say, Hey, listen, I'm being abused at home. Um, people should step in and, and do something. Um, and that's exactly what my aunt and uncle did. They did as much as they could, but here you have your sister who's on film saying, Hey, dad's a pervert. That's not something kids just say out of the blue. Ha ha. Just to be funny. I don't think, I don't think I don't. I, I, yeah. I agree a thousand percent. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, she tried to tell as many people as possible. And on top of that, my father really outed himself. Um, there was this huge incident about a year, I think like it was almost a year to the day before Alyssa went missing. It again was the last day of school. He picks her up. They go out into the middle of the desert. He tries to get sexually aggressive with her. She remains calm. Um, they get back home. And then when they get into the driveway, she runs from his truck and runs to the neighbor's house. So I, I believe is outside. Um, but, you know, my father convinces that neighbor that my sister's just on drugs. Um, and like he ends up calling CPS twice, um, you know, Child Protective Services and says, what can I do? My daughter is lying and saying that um, she's being sexually abused. And that prompts no response from Child Protective Services. And he also calls the police multiple times and says, what can I do about my daughter who's on drugs and accusing me of sexually abusing her? Um, you know, can she be arrested for being homosexual? Can she be arrested for this? Can she be arrested for that? He calls multiple times. And then again, the police don't follow up either. So when the police come back to me and say, you know, Alyssa didn't tell an adult, you know, no adults were aware, you know, I, I, I call BS on that. Can I ask you about the contract that's on your reset um, resources page, also known as the evidence? Because this is like one of those things. Because um, on your on your web page, Voices for Justice podcast, on the page that you have devoted to your sister. Um, just scrolling through this, there's a a birthday party contract and for this is this is like for what her 17th birthday so this is for a friend this is a contract that my father made her sign in order for her to go to a friend's birthday party okay okay at, at charity's house okay with the her last name redacted um and then there was another contract between Alyssa and her dad. What was that all about? Yeah, I want to say that there's three contracts total. Um, and my father actually like faxed these to the police, or at least faxed one at one point. But the contracts um, say a variety of 
really odd things. He um, actually gets one of them notarized. He has her sign them, of course, and they say things like, I was never sexually abused by my father. Mm -hmm. I was never physically abused by my father. I've never given oral sex. Um, I've never had, I think, like bisexual sex, just like the weirdest cringiest topics you could ever think to speak with your 17 year old daughter about um there's even like i won't walk alone outside at night yeah um which is insane because like i said i was raised totally different like by the time i was 12 like i was running the streets at night so i can't even imagine at the age of 12 being told you can't walk alone at night let alone being 17 and in her position um but yeah these these contracts are obviously extremely inappropriate um obviously not legal binding um yeah. but i think that they made Alyssa feel as if she, if she spoke out about this abuse that my father could say no look you signed it nobody's gonna believe you and not to be funny not to be a smart ass but on the one hand th th no contract is legally binding unless that person is over the age of 18. Nobody's Nobody would look at this and say, oh, she signed a contract. Well, you know, there you go. There you have it. And and second of all, this is this has to be one of the most ridiculous contracts I've ever seen because it's just it's it's the statement of 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 facts that people, it's like, why, why, why would you have her sign a contract saying this never, this never happened? Like, if I was going to have my kids sign a contract, I would. It, the contract would have things like, no feet on the dining room table, no soda after 9 p.m., no soda except for on the weekends. I'll take care of the chickens and 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 harvest the eggs once a day. None, nothing, nothing at all sexual. I think that that would be the last thing on my mind. Um, were there any alarm bells when people read this contract? Did anybody like scratch their heads? Says, like, this is weird. I mean, I, I believe the police did. Absolutely. So at this point, you know, like I said, the, the gentleman had confessed and they were like, we don't believe you, sir. Um, and then they started uh, looking into my father. You know, they wanted to talk to him. They were like, come on down to the station. Let's go ahead and get this interview over with. And he was like, yeah, no, thanks. Um, he literally never interviewed for them. He refused to give DNA. And then, yeah, they started looking into everything. Like I said, he faxed them one of these contracts and they were like, I'm sure, like, what is going on with this? You know, they looked into the child protective services history and found these calls from him about a year prior. Um, and they just started digging really, really deep. And, uh, he became, you know, the only person of interest and has been the only person of interest for like the past 10 years. Um, so the spotlight really began to sh shine on him at that point. So your, your sister disappeared and you were 12 at the time. And then there's, I guess there was the age of 17. You found something in the garage that I wanted to get to. Between her disappearance and what you found in the garage, was there a lot of other activity that, that we should talk about before we move on to the other, I, I don't mean to be funny, bombshell? Um, I love it. Don't, it's fine. I always like accidentally say like it, it blows up and then I'm like, no pun intended. Um, yep. okay. But I'm, I'm blanking on what I found in the garage. I, I, uh, the, um, where did you find the pipe bombs? So I didn't find the pipe bombs. Okay. Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, what? Um, so no, so I didn't find the pipe bombs. Um, so what ends up happening is, um, so I'm 19 at this time. And the police and I have, you know, developed this relationship. I interviewed them for my school paper. They've been to my house. I'm thinking everything's fine. I'm thinking my dad's cooperating because, you know, I, I very much just hear his side of it and then talk to the police. I don't hear a lot of in between. And of course, like, I'm my father's best friend at this point. If they're going to trust anybody, it's not me, um, which is totally understandable. But they call me one day and they say, um, oh, so let me backtrack just a little bit. So during this time, my father does fall ill. He says that he just can't handle the stress anymore. He doesn't want to be the family point person anymore or the police contact. So he pushes that on to me. I take over all the communications with the police eventually. Um, it's only for like a few months, but they end up calling me and they say, hey, we have some news about your sister. Can you come down and talk to us? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Like I have a Spanish test later. Is that going to be okay? And they're like, yeah, no problem. You'll get to your Spanish test uh, just fine. I'm like, all right, great, whatever. I go down there, um, wait for them, and they call me in. They end up giving me like a 40-minute rundown of the entire case. You know, they say... Sarah, we've looked into everything we can. We've been working this like crazy. We've talked to dozens of witnesses um, and everything is pointing towards your father. Did you know that your father was sexually abusing her? Did you know that you have a sister you don't know about? Do you know that your brothers believe that your father was sexually abusing her? Like basically like, hey, kid, everything points at your dad. Um and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I just like start crying. And then they're like, listen, we're raiding your house right now to find evidence of Alyssa and to get DNA from your father. Um, what do you think about your dad now? And, you know, me being well versed in the law at 19 or whatever um, from my dad, I just say, am I free to go? Because I know I shouldn't be talking. I'm like, I tell them, like, I don't know. You guys are scaring me. I don't know what you're going to say. Like, I just need to go. And so I go back to the house um, and he's already gone. And I find out later at the news on the news that night that they found 26 pipe bombs and a 96 page manifesto um, for, you know, outlining how he's going to use those bombs. Like when they arrested him at the mailbox, he had, I think, a few guns and like seven magazines or something absolutely insane on him. Just a, a mass amount of, I guess, artillery, you'd call it. Um but yeah, I, I found out on the news that night, essentially, that my house had been filled with pipe bombs and that there was this entire plan, um, which is absolutely insane. And of course, I have to ask, what was the plan? Yeah, so this document um, was called The Diary of a Madman Martyr. And essentially, it outlines um, his entire, my father's entire life, right? Like every grievance he've, he's ever had in this world about his family and growing up. Um, but then it says, you know, that he found out that an electrical union um, that he used to be a part of actually killed Alyssa. He says that he met with two gentlemen, two assassins from that union, um, and they were following him and stalking him. And individually, he kills both of these guys. He kills both members at different times. And they each tell him that um, basically that they killed Alyssa, that the union killed Alyssa and that they'll um, that he'll find her body in Desert Center, California. And in turn, of course, my father kills these assassins um, in a blaze of glory, according to these documents. And so because of this happening, because of these assassins killing Alyssa, 
he starts stockpiling these pipe bombs. He begins to build them, and he planned to go blow up the um, the Union building. There was even a list that he created that was something like it just outlined all of his steps. It's basically like um, he was going to drive our old Astro van that was filled with propane tanks and had chlorine sticks in the wheel wells. He was going to drive that into the building in hopes of, it's my understanding, in hopes of it exploding and this like these chlorine sticks creating some type of gas. Um, and then his plan was to shoot anybody that was moving. That's, that's crazy. Um, but then, of course, you don't think that they killed your sister, though. At some point, you realized, and this is very brave of you, you actually confronted your dad? Yeah. Um, so, no, I, ne I never heard this story, and I never believed it. I always thought that that was really, really insane in just one of my father's writings. Um, but it's not as if he was, like, going around telling all of his children about this plan. It was very much like he wrote this and nobody really knew about it. I think only one brother had heard the assassin story. Um but yeah, eventually, like I start coming around, not at first, like there's, there's still like so many years after this, that I defend my father that I try to plea for his innocence, at least in relation to Alyssa, I still never think in a million years that he could have anything to do with Alyssa, because I was just that brainwashed. And I was just that close to him. And I had never experienced abuse. Um, but yeah, the years go by, he goes to prison for 10 years, he starts getting more nasty. It becomes more apparent that he doesn't love really anyone but himself. And I start like looking around to my family members and people who are close to me. And I'm like, do you think my dad could have done it? And everybody's like, Sarah, everybody thinks your father did it. Um, you know, the police start telling me things. The police say, you know, we don't think your sister wrote the, the runaway note. We don't think that she, um, or I'm, we think your father made your sister write the runaway note. Um, and that we don't think that she made that phone call a week later. Like, so I'm getting it from all sides, family, friends, the police, everybody is like, listen, kid, your dad did this. Like the police even, um, partnered up with a forensic psychologist from my father's bomb case. And they had a plan to um, present my sister's case. It was literally titled Inside the Criminal Mind. It was a lecture at the University of Arizona, and they were going to really profile my dad in relation to his suspected involvement with my sister's disappearance. So it was like, like I said, it was coming from everywhere. And they had these presentations, and it it was just very overwhelming, and there was no other way to see it at this point. So, yeah, eventually I came around. Um, I was under the belief that my father would be arrested when he was released from prison in 2017. That did not happen. The police at that point, like, stopped giving me answers. I had no idea what was going on. So, yeah, I went and I spoke to my father in person. I wanted to speak to him outside of prison, um, you know, in a way that wasn't being monitored by the police or monitored by the prison system. Um, I thought that he would, you know, speak a little more freely at that point, and he absolutely did. I met him at a Starbucks, and he was aggressive, and he, like, leaned across the table at one point and was really trying to, like, talk through his teeth, like that very dad thing that um, – at least that's what my dad did. I imagine lots of dads speak through their teeth when yeah. they're angry. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, yeah. I'm trying to tell um, you, do you need to do your homework before your mother gets home? That kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, 
But yeah, he said some really shocking things. Of course, he said um, he'll tell me everything about what happened to Alyssa on his deathbed. He also said that he'll confess to everything if the state agrees to give him lethal injection within 10 days. Um, Yeah, he basically was awful and mocked me and spoke horrible about Alyssa. And it was awful, but very telling. And I recorded the entire thing. Which is also, I believe, is also on your webpage. You've had that audio in at least an episode of your podcast. How hard how hard was it to share that? It was very hard. Um, I literally just released it about a week ago and just the first part of it. I've been saving it for like three years. Um, it It's very hard. Like editing that audio, listening to it again and again, getting snippets for social and stuff is really, really hard because, you know, people see him as just this horrible guy, which I get. I understand the perception why people think that. But there's still a part of me when I listen to this that I'm like, oh, my gosh, like this is my dad. You know what I mean? This is the guy I grew up with and the guy that taught me right from wrong, believe it or not, Mm -hmm. the guy that taught me that I could record him without telling him in Arizona, the guy that taught me everything about law, that taught me how to play baseball, that taught me how to play video games, like he's still that guy to me. So it was very, very hard. It is, it's still very hard. Like even releasing part two, I'm so nervous. It's just, it's such an intimate conversation. And I, I mean, it's so telling and I feel like it's so important to the story that it's exciting in that fashion. But it's heartbreaking. It, it's not fun. It, 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 I know because um, I, I I totally relate to what you're doing because in trying to figure out who my dad was, my dad passed away about, I think it's, it's either two or three years and going through everything that he did and everything that he claimed. And then my mom's boyfriend who was the abuser and doing research about what he is alleged to have done and talking to other people who were involved. It's sort of like, especially for my dad, I thought my dad was this one person. And then it turned out that, no, no, he was this other person that people actually liked. He was a very charming and charismatic guy. And something happened and he snapped and he became a bit of a transient. We don't know what happened trying to piece together what happened to my dad. And and it's sort of like, it's just sort of like this weird sort of like, it, it's like a Kaiser Sose moment, like at the end of Usual Suspects, when Paul, when um, uh, the police detective is, you know, all of a sudden he's like thinking about all the clues and, oh my God, I had Kaiser Sose in my office the absolute entire time. It, it's sort of like yeah. this nerve wracking, like, wait a minute, how could I have been fooled all this time? And then there's the, the other extreme where I thought, okay, my mom's boyfriend was a bad guy. And then I get this other piece of detail. It says, oh, no, no, he was much worse than you thought. And it was kind of like, how come I didn't see this? Is is there is there always going to be like a part of you, a compartment in, in, inside your mind where your dad exists in two different kind of realms where he's this he's your dad he's the guy that who raised you the good aspects and then there's the other part of the other the other person um mr turney who was this awful guy who was going to do all of these things or have the memories 
been sort of tainted with everything you've learned about him and since he's been released from jail? Yeah, I mean, I would say that my memories have been like rewritten, you know what I mean? Just going back and listening to transcripts, you know, this is the thing is like, I have such real, I guess, facts about him. I have um, so many what happened, like I said, my father like recorded every phone call coming in and going out. So I have all these transcripts of conversations from, you know, the 90s, from the 80s, from when I was born, from when I was a kid, from when, you know, this happened and that happened. And so hearing his raw thoughts, um, yeah, it, it like absolutely changes everything. Going back and seeing those home videos in a different light, like there, there's no separation in which I, I keep him in this compartment where he is that good dad because it all mashes together and I see how horrible he was during all these times where I thought he was being great. Like it doesn't change the fact that I feel like I was treated a lot better than Alyssa. I still see that. But the fact that he was doing so many terrible things while he was treating me so well in my eyes um, still changes everything. It's like it doesn't have to happen to me for me to realize that good people don't abuse children. I, for me, it's just it's so black and white. I'm like, I don't I, you're an abuser. You at least physically abused Alyssa, if not most definitely sexually abused her, according to like 25 different people. Um yeah, I, I can't separate it that way because in turn, like even him hurting Alyssa, like Alyssa was the most important person in my life. So I can't separate it. Um, him taking that person away from me detrimentally affected my entire life. It still does, obviously, like it's become my whole my whole life's mission. Um, so, no, I think that he's terrible and that he was always terrible. And um, it's just very easy to manipulate children. And, and now I see that. It's also difficult for me as a dad to to realize that I have this this background with just monsters in my life. Um, how how do you cope with that being your dad and not let it affect you? Yeah, um, you know, I actually used to work with kids in foster care. You know, kids who were removed from their parents, removed from their homes, um, and that was while my father was in prison. And I think that really taught me the value of um, just being your own person and separating yourself from your family. So, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think that you have to be a victim of your circumstance. You don't have to be a reflection of how you grew up. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just think that it made me incredibly strong and, um, I'm able to, to really separate it. Like what he did and the way I was raised isn't my fault and it's no child's fault. Mm -hmm. Um, if they have a terrible parent like that. So I mean, I feel very fortunate that I'm so strong and that I'm so resilient to it. But yeah, I mean, him being an awful person is no reflection of my my future endeavors. That's that's amazing for you to say, because that's part of the healing process is to realize it. This is not your fault. You didn't do anything. You didn't provoke him to do this. You're not to blame. I heard on several different occasions well you must have done something to provoke him and it was like no it doesn't work like that no <laughs> I, no what nine-year-old does something to provoke you know sexual abuse i i don't understand yeah yeah um and also have to also cope with the fact that it was there's other other people's mental issues that enabled them to do that 
I like I can't take on other people's problems the way that I used to because it's not healthy and it doesn't help anybody. It just makes matters worse. You had said oh, exactly. Yeah. You had said earlier that there were at least 20 people who had said, yep, he's he's a pedophile. Uh, how, how did they deal with this? Is there anybody in particular who stood out in your mind and and tried to do something? And and what did they do to try and put a, a stop to what he did? Gosh, that's a hard question. Um, no, unfortunately, nobody really stepped up to help. I can't think of a single person. I mean, my aunts, my my the aunts on my mother's side after our mother passed did call Child Protective Services on my father multiple times, but I don't know that they were aware of the sexual abuse. I think that they just thought that we were living in bad conditions. We didn't have food, whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the teacher that Alyssa told just went to my dad. They were dating. So she was like, weird, your daughter told me this that's crazy. And then nothing really happened. Um, Alyssa's friends, after she left, there was one friend in particular that actually went to the high school counselor and said, like, my friend is missing. She told me that my, that her dad was sexually abusing her, like, and she hasn't come back. Can you guys help me? And that counselor literally kicked her and another friend that testified to the same thing. They kicked her out of the office. They were like, get out of here, kid. Like, you can't lie about people like that. Um, so, no, unfortunately, like I said, you know, he told the police, he told Child Protective Services, she told a teacher, her friends told a teacher, and nobody stepped up. There's an incident that's, I just remembered while you're saying, you know, talking about this, I heard from a fellow student, and she wrote me various letters about her, the abuse she was getting from at home. I graduated from college. I received all these letters from this friend from school. I went to the principal and and nothing happened. This is probably going to be another difficult question, but what should happen to these people who hear and see the evidence that there's something going on and they didn't do anything about it? Should these people be held to a higher standard or, or persecuted? Or do you think that, that I've... Have the laws been changed? And if not, should they be changed? Like if somebody tells you, hey, this child's being abused or I'm being abused, do you think that there should be something done? Should there be a procedure if there isn't already? Like what should be done to these people who turned a blind eye to, to hearing the abuse that they've heard of from from other witnesses or the victims yeah. themselves? I mean, I think it certainly depends, right? Like I would never place blame on one of her friends um, because I feel like that's not fair. I feel like it's not a fair expectation for a child to know what to do in that situation, right, exactly. especially, yeah, you know, cause Alyssa would say, please don't tell anybody. Like, I don't want my sister to be taken away from me, which is heartbreaking and devastating in so many different ways. But she would ask people like, please don't tell anybody because I need to protect my sister, me. Um, but in terms of people who were mandated reporters, you know, that teacher in terms of child protective services who absolutely obviously knew better in terms of the police literally not doing anything when my father called in such a suspicious way. And for so many times, um, I don't know what that punishment should be, but I think that there should be some type of of action. You know, I don't think that these people necessarily were the cause for her death or the cause for her disappearance. 
but right absolutely sh- absolutely yeah and but I'm, should I, something happen? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was a mandated reporter when I worked with kids in foster care. I lost my job after reporting child abuse. Like, I understand the consequences of reporting abuse. Like, it's not fun and it's not cool. But at the end of the day, when you're in those positions, like, you took an oath to those kids. Yeah. If, if you want to be a teacher or work with kids in foster care or be a police officer, be in child protective services, and you're not willing to put your job on the line to make sure those kids are safe, you shouldn't be in those positions. I want to ask you about how the police handled this entire case. Uh, I had a conversation with uh, Jenny Carreri, who... Yeah. Yes. And she started Justice for Jody. And she bought all of these billboards and she's trying to find out who really killed her sister. And in the interview that I did with her, she had told me that the hardest part of trying to find out who killed her sister was the incompetence of the police department. Did you have any problems with the police or did, and again, sorry for the background noise. Um, um, what was your relationship with the police during the investigation into your sister's killer or not your sister's your dad i'm sorry no you're fine you're fine i know it it gets used interchangeably um so it it evolved over time it started off um pretty good right i was a kid i was like 17 when i started talking to them and i you know i was like great thanks for helping my sister Um, which is how I felt for many, many years. And we, again, um, developed a relationship. Of course, when my father went to prison, I I wasn't super happy with them. I was like, listen, this is not where I thought it was going to go. Like, this feels like a witch hunt. Literally using terms and phrases that my father um, pretty much ingrained in me. This is a witch hunt. This is a blanket search warrant. You know, these aren't terms I come up with naturally. And I think the police know that, too. Um, so for a bit there, it was, it was a little tense, right? When you arrest somebody's dad and like take away their whole lives, it's a little tense. Um, but then eventually I come around and the second I realize, um, that my father is most likely, you know, the person of interest that they're looking for in this case, I tell them, I say, Hey, I see what you see. How can I help? And then our relationship strengthens even stronger again, you know, for years and years, they're sending me emails. What do you think about this? Have you seen this? Can you ask this person this? Um, we work together in my mind to really help propel this case forward. I was the only family member that was really talking to them extensively at that point. Um, so I thought everything was fine. Like I literally, um, cried when they got taken off the case because I, I cared for them so much. And I realized that they cared so much, you know, these guys, these two detectives in particular dedicated 10 years of their career to Alyssa. Like that's huge. Um, but then eventually it, it soured when my father didn't, you know, get prosecuted. And it's for a variety of reasons. I feel that they haven't told me the whole truth about everything going on. Um, the detectives ended up being reassigned, you know, not too uh not too long before my father was released from prison, one detective in particular was reassigned like two weeks before my father got out of prison after I've been told that he's going to be arrested. You know, we're going to arrest your dad when he gets out of prison. That way he can't combine sentences. Again, terms and things I I don't know off the top of my head that I'm being told by police. So um, when he's not arrested, of course, I go back to them. And I'm like, hey, 
what's going on? And they kind of blow me off for a few months. And then we finally sit down and get to meet and they say, okay, we're not going to prosecute your dad. And I'm like, what? They're like, we need a body. And I'm like, okay, so where are we looking for the body? And they're like, oh no, we're not going to look. We don't have the resources. And I was like, can I raise the resources for you? And they say, no. Um, they say, but what we're going to do is give you a silent witness campaign. Um, there's going to be a billboard with Alyssa's picture on it in every freeway in Phoenix. There's going to be all these radio spots and, you know, your best chance for getting uh, prosecution is media exposure. So we, we encourage you to go get media exposure. So I get sent kind of on this like fool's errand, if you will, because I don't think that they ever expected me to get as much media as I did. You know, the billboards never run. Um, they start becoming like just really crappy to me. I uh, So I actually email one of the detectives on the case. You know, I, I, at this point, like I cycle through a few detectives because that's just kind of what happens when you don't have a dedicated team anymore. And I, I write to the guy and I'm like, hey, like, I was just wondering, what are my options for pressing sexual abuse charges? You know, uh, is that an option? And he writes back and he's like, I was told that there were no allegations of sexual abuse, like to which my head explodes. And I'm like, what do you mean? You guys released clips of people talking about this abuse to ABC 2020. Like you guys not only have it, you released it to the media and now you're telling me it doesn't exist. Um, and then they go like radio silent for almost two months. I have to call the chief of police. I have to file a complaint. And then I, I have the most ridiculous meeting with their commander after this, who is like, um, you know, Sarah, the reason I called you in here today. And I was like, no, ma'am, I'm sorry. I had to call the chief of police to get this meeting. And she's like, Sarah, just let me finish. It was a combination, like just awful to me. And she tells me like the same things that, um, you know, we don't understand what you're talking about, about sexual abuse charges. Uh, you know, it just, I like again and again, like they just lie to my face repeatedly at this point. So I leave, I, I, in that meeting, I had never spoken to police like I did in that meeting. And I wasn't like cursing or doing anything rude. Like usually the thing is when, when I'd meet with them, I would just become like a puddle and cry in their offices. Like, what do you mean you can't help me? Like, I just don't understand because it's just so overwhelming and it's so yeah. difficult to go through these meetings. But at this point, I've been lied to. I have emails to back up and to prove that I've been lied to. Um, you know, they have this recording of my dad to which they say, well, Sarah, he didn't confess to us. You know, we can't get him in here for a meeting. What do you want us to do? Um, and I'm like, listen, I've done what you guys have told me. I've gotten media exposure. Now you're telling me that that's not enough. I don't know what to do. You're lying to my face. Like, good luck explaining this to Netflix. And I storm out of their office. And um, then the case starts to progress. About a week later, I get an email and things look a lot better in the case, which is kind of where we're at now. People start working on it a little bit more. Um, so, but the relationship never really recovered. I think that that trust was lost uh, on all sides. I think they see me as a loose cannon. Um, and I see them as, as being very deceptive. Um, but yeah, it, it's hard because I, I put so much on social media, but what people don't see is me emailing them saying, if there's anything you see on there that you want me to take down, please let me know. They don't see me literally stopping them from releasing information to the media that I think could hurt the case. Um, so yeah, it, it's become a really crazy, sordid relationship to where I feel like I have to worry about them. And that really sucks. Because this is like the third or fourth time I've spoken to somebody, a, a family member who's a survivor, and that 
the police are all gung-ho when the case is fresh and they're the ones in the driver's seat and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and then something happens and it was all of a sudden the relationship becomes adversarial in the case with Jenny Carreri she was overwhelmed with evidence of I don't want to say a conspiracy of of a cover-up more like a conspiracy of incompetence like they screwed up they dropped the ball and then they were covered they spent more time covering up their own screw-ups than they did actually investigating the case and then talking to other victims in her area and victims families and survivors and it's the same cycle of conspiracy of incompetence oh um, i agree and is this some, have you spoken to other people in your area who have gone through something similar? And the other follow-up question to that is, um, is your sister your dad's only victim? Oh, okay. So um, the thing is, one of the de- one of the detectives actually introduced me to other families in Phoenix who, who had, you know, um, lost a loved one or that their loved one is missing. And one of those girls is um, the sister of Brandy Myers, who went missing in 1992. And what's special about that relationship is that her and I share the same detective, or we did at one point. So when I was told that, um, you know, your detective was reassigned, there is no more cold case unit. We're not even investigating old cases at this point. I meet this girl and I'm like, man, like bummer about Detective Summershoe, right? And she's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, that he was reassigned and that there's like no cold case unit. And she's like, no, like he's still on my case, crazy. And I'm like, whoa, like what is going on here? Um, So I find out that he was literally only reassigned for Melissa's case as far as I can tell. Um, So that, yeah, I mean, that really broke down everything for me. I think I'm forgetting your question. I'm so sorry. I went absolutely blank. <laughs> well, it was a two-parted question, and they were pretty. <laughs> they were pretty heavy. I'm sorry. That's okay. Do you think that your sister is your father's only victim, or is he a suspect in other disappearances? So, in terms of disappearances, I don't believe that he's a suspect from anything I can find. However, what I found going through the police documents and all these interviews is that my father has a documented history of sexually abusing women that are close to him and close to his family. Um, and what I mean by this are is like it's majority um, really like his sister's in-law. He had a relationship with his brother's sister, or I'm sorry, his brother's wife. He had a relationship with his wife's sisters in terms of like he tied one up to the bed and sexually abused her in the 70s. She came forward and and admits this. Um, He was known to frequent prostitutes. He was known to um, be really aggressive with these sexual advances. There's um, a story in which my father is driven up north by one of my brother's friends. Um, And what ends up happening is my father's phone starts like blowing up when they're driving up there. And the girl's like, is everything okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah. You know, my son thinks that you're going to like rob me or something. It's insane. He, my brother continues to call all night. Um, During this time, my father tells the woman he's traveling with, my brother's friend, um, there's no other hotel room, so we just have to share a room. 
And she's like, well, that's weird. And she goes to the front desk and they're like, no, man, like we have plenty of rooms. She gets another room. He gets really aggressive with her and is like, he's recording her, like has a tape recorder in her face. And is like, did I make you uncomfortable? Did I sexually, you know, come on to you in any way? What's going on? Why are you being so rude to me? Like just really, really aggressive. And when this girl gets home, um, she speaks with my brother finally. And he's like, listen, we weren't calling because we thought that, you know, you were going to rob my dad. We were calling because I'm pretty sure my dad killed my sister and I thought he was going to kill you. And, that, and that's something serious that you have to deal with and try and explain to people, yeah, my dad's this thing, this person. Um, a lot of the people that I've also spoke to is that eventually there's a part of you that just like you build a callus over your heart or, or you get a suit of armor around your heart. Do you remember the moment when you you realized, I think you mentioned it earlier, where you just started talking to the police the way that you, like, you're Philip Marlowe in The Big Sleep, where you're just, like, you know, talking smack to them in their face, saying, do the, you know, do your job. Uh, I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't be the one. Is there a moment where you realize that you've become a totally different person because of this, and that you're not the person that you would have been if this never happened? Um, I'm trying to pinpoint the exact moment. I mean, it definitely happened. I mean, before the police told me to get media exposure, I was like, I didn't want to leave the house. Like, I wouldn't go out. I didn't want to go to the grocery store. I was not that 19-year-old that was trying to go party. Um, I I was just so reclusive and, like, so antisocial. So this has changed everything for me. You know, it was extremely difficult speaking about Alyssa's case at first. Um, you know, I would do inter extensive interviews and I would be wiped out for days. I would need like three days to recover from one interview and, you know, flash forward to today, I could, I could do a few in one day and be totally fine because you do develop this, this thick skin to talking about it. And not only that, it's, it's driven by like a greater purpose. Like, I'm going to be sad about my sister no matter what. I might as well do something about it. I might as well take that grief and make it make it act like this is my active form of grieving is talking about her. And um I think that you know the confidence in speaking to the police like I do, which I am still like extremely polite. Like I <laughs> there's an insane situation going on right now and I literally wrote them and was like I hope you're having a great Memorial Day weekend. Just wanted to ask you about this because it's literally insane. Like I, I'm never like do your job. You need to do this. You're not doing this right. I am always respectful, and that's on purpose. These people are doing a job. I understand. I, I've never been a police officer, but I've been in that position of which I have to do what I'm told. What do you want me to do? So I am firm but respectful, and I think that that's extremely fair. Um, and yeah, I think I really started coming back at them because I had so much evidence to show that they were being deceptive with me. Like literally you're on ABC 2020 saying this and now you're telling this to my face. I'm not going to take that. Like, I'm sorry. I will forever be respectful and polite to you, but I will not be lied to, to my face. I will come back at you and say, I think that you're lying. Um, and all this police audio is going to be released on the podcast. Like, I think it's it's unreal and people are going to be extremely shocked because I even I tell like they try to fight with me about things in this one particular meeting. And I just look at her and I say, you know what? Our emails are public record and I'm fine with that. Like, because there's there's no better, I guess, like ammo than the truth. 
ma'am, I've been on this case for, you know, 15 years or whatever at this point. I have emails going back for a decade of you telling me these things. There's no way you're going to come back at me now and, and tell me some of these things didn't happen. Like, I, I won't take it. It's absolutely insane. Like you, yeah, it's like gaslighting at its finest. But yeah, I, I developed it over a very long time and um, it's it's done Alyssa's case wonders. Because what would have happened without you? I, I mean, I know that's a rhetorical question, but if it wasn't for you, she would have been forgotten. Not to be melodramatic, but you have sort of, you, you've literally kept her memory alive. And you've become one of these people who is an advocate for survivors, in a sense. Um, and a lot of people, myself included, look to you as, as an example. And you've been on the media. You've been in the media talking about your sister's case. Um so you're a hero. I, I don't think that there's a there's a, a a question in there at all. But you're still doing you're still doing media. Um, how do you you said that like after doing an interview, you sleep for, or you need to recover for three days. Um, is there something that you do now to prepare for talking to somebody, say, you know, other podcasters, or do you just wake up in the morning and you just say? I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this interview and then I'm going to get on with the rest of my life. Is there a process that you go through to prep yourself for this? Um, I mean, not really anymore. Um, you know, of course, like all listen to that person's podcast is probably the prep, right? So I can like understand yep. the format and be respectful to that. Um, but no, I mean, unless I'm asked to specifically prepare something for the interview, like I don't have any notes in front of me right now, which I mean, maybe sometimes I should because um, it's such a big case. But no, like I just like to go on and speak from the heart. Um, I mean, the only prep I would say is like I have to have coffee or whatever. Um, but no, it, it's very much like, OK, now I have other things to do and I, I have to get them done. And I think it also comes from like at a certain point. I can't waste three days of my life being guilty or feeling bad about it, which, you know, like no tea, no shade to anybody who needs that time to recover. I've moved on from that point. Um, and I have so much to do now with Alyssa's case. I am incredibly busy that I don't really have that luxury anymore. And I wouldn't want to take it anyway. Um, there's for me, like right now, I'm in this point where I feel like I have to strike while the iron's hot. You know, Alyssa's story is popular right now. It's it could, of course, always be more popular. Um, but I don't want to regret taking all of that time to just recover if I don't feel like I absolutely have to like it would be nice it'd be a luxury to like pamper myself after interviews or whatever but like I have things to do and I have interviews to do and um yeah content to create for Alyssa and it's just a, a totally different mission now where yeah I, I, working towards it really feels the best for me because I feel like I'm actively getting something done for her and like you said helping other people like that's been the best part of it is people coming forward and saying, I, I heard your sister's story and that helped me get out of my abuse. That helped me save my sister from abuse. Like those things that make Alyssa live on mean so much to me. And it really drives me to just keep going. 
so what's what's next for you? Like, if you ever actually solved this case, and you put your dad for prison for what he has done, because I, I I'm assuming that he went to prison for the bomb making and formulating a plan to go on this killing spree. Or or do I have that wrong? The reason why he went to, to prison was because of the bomb making. That's correct. Okay. Just suppose that he does go to prison um, for what he did to your sister. I'm just going on the assumption that he actually did it because I have no reason to believe otherwise. I should be saying allegedly he did it because um, that's just good reporting. But let's just say like... He, <laughs> let like where do you, where do you go from here and is are you going to um take your voices for justice and and put it to work for other people yeah that's exactly the plan is now i want to help other people like of course you know i i will forever be focused on Alyssa's story until she has her justice but i feel like it's coming and that it's coming soon um, so I definitely want to go on to help other people. Like, what's the point of me learning all this and going through all of this if my experiences can't help other people, especially other families? And it doesn't have to be somebody missing or somebody murdered. It could be a wrongful conviction or just really any situation in which justice needs to be served, especially when it's so blatant and it's so clear. Um, so yeah, I want to specialize in in helping family members in particular, or I mean, it could be a friend, just somebody very close to the case, somebody, you know, as selfish as this might sound, somebody like me, somebody who is trying to make sense of a very complicated situation, trying to fight for what's right, and they don't know where to go from there. Um, I, I want to help as many people as I can. I mean, even in Phoenix, there's so many cases that I see, you know, with the same department that I would love to help. Um, but of course, I, I wouldn't limit it to just that. I want to help as many people as I can. And thank you for that. And thank you for everything that you have done. Um, I went a little over. I have so many other questions to ask you. Um, but I think that we basic, basically we, we covered everything that I can think of, unless that you have something else that you wanted to share and something that you wanted to say to other people who are going through what you're going through. Yeah. I mean, I always want to, you know, try to help people who are going through similar things and let them know, like, whatever you're doing, if you're not hurting somebody, you're doing it right. If you need to take a break, that's fine. If you don't want to take a break, that's also fine. Like, do what feels right to you and work to the best of your ability and have peace with that. I never want people to feel guilty or compare themselves to what I'm doing because every journey is so, so different. And just know that if it takes 10 years or 20 years, you're going to help people and you're going to change somebody's life. Um, so yeah, I mean, keep going. Don't compare yourself to others. Be forgiving of yourself and just do the best you can. Yeah, absolutely. And again, don't sell yourself short. You've done a lot with this case, and you are an inspiration to a lot of people, such as myself, for giving us the motivation. I can never see myself that way. Maybe in like 10 years. But when people say that to me, I'm still like, oh my gosh. Yes. What? Me? Who? 
it's the thing is you've done just so much amazing with the case of your sister and um i wish the best for you and i i I hope that they finally persecute him and and i hope that he gets the justice he deserves and i hope that you continue what you're doing and um i enjoy your podcast and i enjoy your tweets and how you offer so much support um online do you want to share with everybody your social media um where can we find you on Twitter and Facebook and tell us just a little bit about where we can find um, uh, your website? Basically, give us a plug. Tell us where to find you. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. So you can follow me on social media. Um, Twitter is Sarah E. Turney for my personal or you can follow just the podcast at BFJ pod. Um, Facebook, I have a page for Justice for Alyssa. I have a page for the podcast. Um, you'll see me like segmented out on social media. It's just easier to keep it separate. So same with Instagram. You know, I have Sarah E. Turney as my personal, Justice for Alyssa, Just for Alyssa, and then um, Voices for Justice podcast, all about the podcast. And um, yeah, you can also visit voicesforjusticepodcast.com. I put up um, like supporting evidence on there. You can listen to all my podcast episodes. It'll tell you how to help Alyssa if you're interested. And yeah, like, please listen to Voices for Justice on, you know, um, what is it? Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most podcast players. Um, I'm out there everywhere. Uh, But yeah, I very much still need media pressure and even more now than ever before. And all that will come to the light in the podcast. And you will find out everything behind the scenes eventually. But just know that I still need help. And Nolis's story might seem big, um, but it's not big enough yet. So please, please, please share. Please help me in any fashion that you feel appropriate. And of course, like I tell all of my guests, you have an open invitation. Um, just give me, give me a little bit of a notice, a heads up, and you want to come on the podcast and you want to talk about something that's going on, late breaking news, you're always welcome. And thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. And thank you for your patience, because we tried to do this a couple of times and things fell through and all of these things. And I thank you so much for sticking with me and for everything you do again. I don't, you know, I can't thank you enough and keep doing what you're doing because you're doing great. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And no worries. Things happen. And I'm so happy to be here. And um, yeah, I'll I'll definitely take you up on that someday to come back. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. A special thanks to Aurora Caddy for joining us on this edition of True Crime One-on-One. Please be sure to visit and bookmark the website murdermurder.news. Follow Murder Murder on Twitter at mmurdernews and on Instagram at murdermurdernews. This has been True Crime One-on-One from the Fedora Chronicles. Find out more about our podcasts on the Fedora Chronicles Network by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by simply searching for The Fedora Chronicles on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook after you found it so you can keep up with what we will be talking about in the next episode. Facebook, Twitter, and our email address, fedorachronicle at gmail.com, are great ways to drop us a line with comments and future show topic suggestions. We might even read your comment on the air. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fedora Chronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the podcast, updates on what we're doing, 
And for $5 a month, you get all that and a t-shirt and coffee mug. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at Zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Our theme song for True Crime One-on-One is Cliffhanger by Olive Music from Premium Beat, which provided the license for the song. The Fedora Chronicles radio show and our other podcasts is edited and produced by Eric Hunter Kingfisk. That's me. Copyright The Fedora Chronicles 2020. All rights reserved.